Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. In this episode, we're joined by Eric Brito, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, University of Toronto. Eric, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you. So, to get us started with this conversation, how was it the case that you came to do philosophical work in education? What's, what was your entry point into this, uh, into this field? Unfortunately, it's a slightly long story. Okay. Um, but uh, because I went through many different fields, and I started in physics, okay. went to systems analysis, then sociology, then sociology of education, and then have taught philosophy for the last 30 years or so. Oh, I took philosophy along the way, but I kept changing and growing through those fields, basically from the natural sciences through the social sciences to the humanities. Um, along the way, I did educational policy research. Okay. When I was in my uh, systems analysis phase, if you want to call that, so that got me um, very interested in education. Mm. This is in the 60s, and education was seen as kind of a way of changing culture and doing things. And, sure. Uh, and uh, I sort of found my way in relation to that. Um, then what actually happened, I think, was I went to the University of Illinois, um, and around the time I finished my PhD and then got there, the social sciences were going through a huge self-questioning about methods. Sure. So this is when uh, you know, all the razzmatazz about interpretive and critical approaches to things were basically being born and became popular. Uh, and I'd experienced it, you know, be sort of being trained by good positivists. And, mm. and I mean good positivists in the sense that these were thoughtful people, but sure. they had a certain conception of what sociology and social science should be. And, uh, you know, I'd already experienced something different. And uh, we kids were challenging it in class and, you know, thought, this, boy, this is too limited and sure. so on. And then I got to Illinois and, and the, the methods wars were, were on in full force. And in the sociology department, for instance, um, if you took a, a qualitative research course with Norm Denzen or somebody like that, who was younger and not quite as famous then as he is now, hmm. um, you were disbarred from the quantitative okay. part of the program. So there was this politics going on, and I just felt it was unfair and unhelpful. And, of course, this started coming into the ed schools as well. And you had the quants and the quals starting to do their battles, and the quants were dominant, but the quals were you know, trying to come along. Sure. And, and critical theory was basically not even on the table. Hmm. That is, you could hardly raise that voice. Uh, and you could hardly get it published. Mm. And that's one reason that so much of the work came out in curriculum journals. Okay. Because they were sort of more vulnerable to... So Mike Apple and others were publishing. I see. So then at Illinois, it's just... Uh, 
basically the strongest group of people there, most interesting to my mind, were the philosophers mm. in the ed school, in the mm. College of Education. And so I hung out with them and uh, did a book with Walter Feinberg and uh, uh, teaching courses with people. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and that sort of got me into it. Interesting. Um, so that's kind of how it began. Okay. So, so, so I guess you have someone like, uh, as you mentioned, Walter Feinberg here, serving as, um, I suppose, a bit of a host, uh, if you will, as you navigate uh, navigated these questions of methodology. I mean, uh, is, is that right, or would, would, would you characterize it uh, differently? Well, first, Wally was, was probably my best friend. Yeah. Uh, we did stuff together, so he was a colleague in the best sense, is a colleague. Sure. Remains in the best sense of not someone, even though he was older, sure. not someone who was dominating things, but we were sure. we were really working on stuff together. Sure. But I, I sort of meant uh, the fact that he was sort of uh, more firmly uh, uh, in the uh, philosophical uh, world. He, he, he was. In that sense. Of course, yeah. as I'd come through all this, I'd taken philosophy. I see. So I had introductory philosophy with John Searle at Berkeley when I, I was a okay. physics major. I see. Um, but also the very fact that, you know, once you've been through a whole bunch of disciplines, you sort of say, well, you know, philosophers, um, uh, Josiah Royce talks about a philosopher as kind of like a cook's tour operator. Sure. Who takes you to a bunch of different lands. Sure. Uh, but doesn't isn't quite a, a resident of any of them. Sure, yeah. Uh, so the multidisciplinarity aspect uh, kind of figured in it too, as well as philosophy I'd taken all along the way. Okay, okay. Uh, and so and so now that early uh, uh, interest that you had then in physics and then sort of uh, moving along into various uh, into various disciplines, how did all of those interests then uh, sort of uh, play out in your philosophical work uh, on questions of education? I mean, why? Why look at education uh, in the ways that you have, uh, given the fact that you had sort of that, that background? Well, there's another element here, yeah. which is basically my parents were practical progressives. Okay. My mother had been taught at teacher's college. Okay. Dewey came in, gave lectures, counts sure. and trials. Sure. So... And my father was an economist, but a development economist who okay. was trying to do some good overseas and work for land reform and other things. Um, so there was a whole kind of native pragmatism and educationism okay. in my family background. Okay. Um, and very quickly, even though I didn't know, uh, sort of think of myself as a pragmatist at first, I fell into that way of thinking because that was kind of native to me. Sure, sure. Uh, and I think that's remained the case ever since. And I think that's a fair characterization then um, of the way in which uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, you're known for uh, sort of working in philosophy of education, right? I mean, pragmatism, of course, uh, being uh, uh, quite central to uh, uh, most of your projects. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about uh, exactly what those projects have sort of looked like? What, what sort of questions have you been pursuing through the lens of pragmatism? Oh boy, uh, you know, I, th I think I'm a sort of, maybe I'm just an opportunistic thinker, I'm not quite sure. Things come along and I do them. Sure. Uh, you know, the, early on, Wally and I did the book on knowledge and values in social and educational yeah. research. And I'm still, it was an edited collection with essays of our own that kind of tied it together. Hmm. It had 
even though I didn't know it, a kind of pragmatic theme to it all. Mm. It was sort of pragmatizing Habermas in certain ways. Sure. Uh, you know, that was, that was one, and that came out of that early method, methodological war. Yeah. Uh, later work, you know, I was, I was kind of discovering the classical pragmatists, basically, mm. and uh, Dewey and James and Mead and, and Peirce, and I, I probably discovered them, you know, kind of, I'd had some, some background in Mead, of course, a sociologist, uh, got into Dewey very heavily, just felt that this was way ahead of of a lot of the discourse of our time, mm. and that basically we were rediscovering things sure. that Dewey had written about and discovered a hundred years before. Yeah, and so so speaking of rediscovering some of those um, ideas, I wonder if you might say something about the way in which uh, uh, your work is sort of approached uh, and commented on uh, 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 the individualistic sort of impulse in uh, social science, uh, psychology, etc. Psychologists typically have tried, they have to develop their science. To do that, they need some stable phenomena. Hmm. To create the stable phenomena, they they create well controlled situations and sure. and highly uh, n- you know well known tasks in which the people are, are inducted so they you can observe their task behavior. Hmm. So and and I in a sense I don't see anything wrong with that. That is, you always have to create some kind of intervention and and some kind of stabilization. But it's when you forget that you've done that and you forget to look at the consequences of that mm. that things go radically awry. Mm. Um, so that's, and that's the problem. So if B.F. Skinner is looking at animals in a cage sure. and, uh, and he says, what they're doing doesn't count as behavior to me except when they're doing something that's relevant to my task demands. Sure, sure. So the animal's trying to get out of the cage, it's scratching itself, it's, it's sure. doing all kinds of things, it's looking at the experiment or whatever. That's all just completely irrelevant hmm. uh, to his way of framing things. So to my mind, you're allowed to put the animal in the cage and, and, and so forth, but you have to remember you've now limited yeah. The, the natural responses and intelligence of an animal. Hmm. There's some of the limitations that we've had on the social side, of course. Psychologists tend to focus on individuals. Hmm. Sure. And, uh, and then the whole conception of mind and of learning and of development and other such things has often been way too individualistic and asocial. So, you know, I've written to bring George Herbert Mead back into the discussion. Okay. And Mead's one of the most important yet neglected thinkers, I think, mm. in such matters. So, of course, Mead was looking at the, um, the way reflective thought and reflective intelligence emerges out of social interaction. And all these guys, I should add, and my, the classical pragmatists, my good friends there, are trying to naturalize mind and naturalize these phenomena, hmm. but not in a reductive uh, physical determinist sense. Right. So that becomes a theme for me, too, that is, I think of myself as a naturalist, sure. but not in 
what is often the modern sense, which is, oh, now you're a mechanist, and you sure. think everything's just Newtonian. You know, sure. that's, that's not at all what I mean. I mean, in a way, an, an everydaying and a bringing back to to our common world and our common practices of, yeah. of things. But speaking speaking about that common world, I mean, just listening to you describe some of your uh, your background here, I mean, it does seem as though there's a, a, a very interesting connection between your earlier work, right? Sort of navigating methods, then navigating multiple disciplines, uh, and then combining that with a very thoughtful uh, uh, awareness of the social sort of reality of uh, these scientific um, uh, uh, projects, uh, it's almost as though there's a necessary combination, right, uh, between the uh, uh, the abstract and uh, and the embodied in, in, in some sense, right? I mean, uh, uh, there seems to be a, a connection that really does bring everything back to uh, this uh, common world, common experience. Sure. Well, there, there are other parts of biography yeah. that fit in here in the sense that um, for a while I worked in urban planning. Yeah. And I was in San Francisco working for an urban planning firm. Uh, I was then working on the Model Cities program in San Antonio, Texas, in okay. Richmond, California. Okay. As basically looking at the interface between the social programs coming from the government and the sure. local communities and local folks. So I'd be talking to La Raza, to the housing administration, sure. to the ed school people, to everybody. Um, and um, so there was, you know, the, the kind of social, contextualized social reform or social change aspects were in that experience. Mm. Um, so that certainly figures in, you know, and I, I feel like I'm fairly social person and not just a, a techie sure. um, on the other hand I'm probably one of the last PES members who actually has pretty strong science background you know, sure. there, there are a few Jim Garrison would sure. be another yep. but not, not a whole lot of them yeah. Uh, yeah. so yeah but, but, but uh, yeah, but uh, to my mind, it certainly does inform uh, the way in which uh, uh, you're constructing your account of uh, the questions and the way in which you sort of approach the questions that you, uh, that you have chosen to, to spend some time on. Yeah. Absolutely. That is pragmatism, to my mind. I mean, it's just it's concerned with, mm. the, uh, with the consequences of ideas, right. with the, the right. practical implications and consequences of... of uh, of, of claims and of ways of thinking as well. So I'm concerned with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and those are social consequences primarily. I mean, just because I'm coming out of sociology and social experiences. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to my mind, it, it really uh, uh, suggests that uh, those folks who, uh, in the present moment, uh, might be rather interested in uh, particular ways of understanding the world or posing questions about the world through uh, the sciences, uh, be they sort of natural sciences or social science, um, uh, could perhaps find some uh, ready connection to the sorts of work that takes place uh, in philosophy of education through pragmatism or through some other uh, uh, traditions. Yeah. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we have to think about education in the context of of all of nature, yeah, and in in the context of our understanding of the cosmos and our understanding of nature itself. Sure. Um, so you know, the Greeks had one way of doing that. Sure. Uh, we have to have our own way of doing it, which is different. Sure. Uh, but um, you know, and we were talking one of my students but he's he's teaching me I think 
uh, in terms of making education more environmentally uh, encompassing and so forth. This is an issue we're all dealing with today and can't avoid, right. especially when we think about our kids and our kids' kids yeah. uh, and what kind of world we're, we're bequeathing them. Um, but, you know, we come back to nature, to understanding communication and change in all in different levels of natural phenomena. Sure. So, uh, you know, just biosemiotics and, and uh, you know, interactions. Uh, you know, Darwin regarded the, the little tip of the root of the plant hmm. as analogous to the plant's brain. Sure. Because that was what helped where the plant sort of synthesized its information on, on different conditions mm. and directed the root growth in a certain way depending on that information. If you cut that little tip off, the plant doesn't keep testing and adjusting, it just grows blindly. Okay. So huh. there's a kind of intelligence in plants even, and obviously communication sure. in plants in animals as well. So we were just talking the other day about, uh, you know, Mead is essentially drawing the connections between gestures and um, sort of the beginnings of acts that have meaning to other animals as they signal mm. one another. So we're doing that all the time. Right. For Mead, our, our verbal expressions are gestures. Mm. So they're sort of signals about what we're likely to be doing and where things are likely to be going. Mm. And we interpret those signals with one another but we also have many other gestures. So just learning to understand ourselves sure. is related to learning to understand animals. Sure. Because uh, we're just gesturing creatures with, sure. with one another. This is not to deny language. It's a sophisticated version of all that. Yeah. I mean, again, but th th that really does suggest that there is a, a seat at the table, if you will, for those folks who uh, may not see themselves as being invited, uh, perhaps, uh, to, the, uh, to the philosophical. I mean, there's certainly a space here uh, for those who uh, uh, may be interested in these questions of uh, uh, science from, from a variety of perspectives. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'll, the student I was just mentioning uh, or referring to is very interested in biological theory and evolutionary theory and Good. so forth. Yeah. Another former student uh, was a math teacher, is very yeah. interested in mathematics. Yeah. So he's got, in his dissertation, was thinking about the philosophy of mathematics mm. and how it relates to math teaching. Yeah. So there are philosophical questions within of course. the mathematical community. And of course. Klein writes about this and, 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 and others. Um, and that was actually stimulated in part by Dewey's old book on the psychology of number, mm. uh, which few people know about. Yeah. He did it with a guy named McClellan, who was a psychologist. Um, but that became a, a starting off point for this particular student to oh, interesting. Uh, um, yeah. kind of develop some of his work. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's that good work to be done there. And I wonder, to your mind, are there any other ideas that you have about uh, potential futures for work in philosophy of education, either uh, in bringing you know, some of this uh, uh, scientific uh, uh, work uh, uh, more closely to the center of uh, uh, what the field is up to, or uh, work in other directions that uh, comes to mind readily? I'll start with maybe several things. Um, it seems to me you begin to philosophize when you're puzzled. Mm. It's about puzzlement and doubt, and the more 
sort of fundamental the puzzlement, the more philosophical you might become if you have the time and inclination. Sure. Um, so it's about thinking about how we think about and approach things, um, how we conceive things, and often those conceptions are the sources of our deepest difficulties. Okay. So, uh, you know, I forget there's a little poem about how we draw circles mm. and, and then neatly fall over them, trip on them, mm. uh, the ones we've drawn. Okay. Uh, so philosophers are, I think, concerned with the way we've created our own um, worst uh, dysfunctional ways of, of thinking and with imagining new ways of thinking about things, new approaches mm. that would be less self-defeating and entangling and by self I don't mean as individuals, I mean as communities and sure. groups of, of people trying to live together um, so that work is never done mm. because we're always drawing new lines and always later neatly tripping over them oh. um, and uh, but then philosophy goes beyond that in a particular field or whatever it's not just you know, some of my writing's been on conceptions in psychology and education. Um, but it's also about trying to create a... Um, trying to develop a more integral view of things. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, oh, here's this discipline as this issue, or this discipline as that issue. The disciplines themselves mm -hmm. are fragments. I think Emerson says something about how humankind used to be one person mm. and now all there is is a finger and an eye and a stomach but never a whole man because he was using male gender uh, because we've been fragmented and diced and sliced and, mm. and so, so part of our job is to try and uh, pull together things into a more integral vision uh, for me a lot of that comes from evolutionary thinking okay. that uh, evolution becomes a kind of way of um, obviously understanding our cosmos and understanding society and, and, and life. Sure. Um, and the, the metaphor that is, there, there are very deep similarities between evolution and education. Of course, yeah. So when, when you read Darwin and Wallace and their early papers and you're, you're reading about, you know, they're different species are kind of stabilized in some area mm. and, and you, they wonder why. Well, it's because they're competing with each other and they're kind of reaching some kind of dynamic equilibrium. And then when you mess it up, the whole system goes wild and all these different critters are trying to live and, and reproduce. And that's essentially like us when we're inquiring. Okay. When our equilibria with our environments are disturbed sure. and we're busy thinking about what the heck am I going to do and how am I going to respond to this situation and, and those hypotheses are, are, are basically like these uh, unique critters trying to, uh, to have descendants okay, yeah. and our ideas are trying to have descendants in very much the same way uh, or trying is maybe too much to it. Let's say the lucky ones will have descendants. Um, so there's a deep analogy between evolution mm. and evolutionary readjustment and cognition and, and thinking and inquiry mm. at the human level, but 
at other levels as well. Um, so, um, and that kind of readjustment is what we're doing educationally as well. Mm. You know, as, as communities of people trying to find ways of carrying our lives on and, and bringing with us whatever has kind of worked and seems good from the past. Sure. We don't want to lose that. Sure. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of old baggage that gets in the way, too. Mm. And so all that's very Dewey-in, and, and, you know, yeah. those guys were all, were all through this evolutionary metaphor, um, you know, which is a literal. It's so, it's so literal, you, you could uh, almost call it not a metaphor at all. Sure, but I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think those ideas are really generative, especially as we think about sort of what uh, Dewey and his uh, contemporaries were doing at that time uh, relative to sort of uh, developments that were going on in science or that had recently occurred in science, and then the uh, sort of the way in which the uh, contemporary world uh, is full of all sorts of developments uh, relative to our understandings of similar issues uh, uh, in and around uh, 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 sort of issues about uh, the way in which we understand the world uh, that we might... Uh, as philosophers of education, uh, readily engage in an attempt to better understand education, as you've been suggesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're our world is. We think our world is changing incredibly dramatically. Mm. Um, I think it's least arguable that the turn of the 20th century was more dramatic. Sure. But the question is, how do you how do you adjust to these conditions? socially and economically and politically yeah. um, and do so in a way that's uh, uh, loving and kind to others and uh, not dogmatic and mm. allows room for and yet um, tough-minded sure uh, so it's not just uh, that anything goes sure you're, you're trying things out looking at them critically uh, and so on um so there's there's always that challenge, and and you know I'll come back to one of my students is kind of writing about purse and evolutionary love, and mm. and uh, she spoke of that very nicely recently, um, and I go back to uh, Pestalozzi, okay. who was uh, was saying basically in education, uh, if you don't if love's not involved, you can't even begin. Mm. The process mm. uh, that that's the basic thing, and of course he doesn't just mean being sentimental and gushing over people. He means the kind of care you have with your kids, you know, yeah. where you're trying to foster them and care for them, and and uh, uh, hopefully become lifelong friends later on too. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of things. I mean, that's just so critical and so little talked about. And if you pick up almost any text in education, uh, Pestalozzi's sayings would be completely alien to it. Mm. Uh, you will not find a psychologist. Maybe you will. Probably you will. I'm probably wrong. But let's just but you'd say... you'd be hard-pressed. You'd be uh, hard-pressed. To find a room full of them. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. right. And to what to be concerned with such things and what yeah. that means and how that um, might play out. Yeah. So there, there's some uh, 
it has some very basic things to think about in yeah. education. Well, you know, Eric, thanks, thanks so much. I mean, you've given us uh, uh, quite a bit to think about uh, uh, in ways that have caused us uh, certainly to look towards the past and figure out uh, what we might take from that past as we move forward in philosophy of education. But uh, there also seems to be quite a bit of work to be done uh, into the future uh, as well. So thank you so much for sitting and chatting with us. Uh, it's been a real, real pleasure. Okay, it's very, my, very much my father. Yeah. Thank you. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.